0: Your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 6. If you're a guest with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. Uh, There are two things in your bulletin. There's a connection card. If you'll take a moment and fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us. And there are baskets at each exit door. You can drop that connection card in the basket. And then right next to that, there is a gift for you and say, just to say thank you for being here with us. Also, there is a outline of this morning's message. And we're going to have a... Towards the end of this message, we're going to have a little bit of participatory uh, involvement uh, w- with you uh, during this, uh, this time together. So John chapter 6, John 6 is a very long chapter, and I'm going to try to cover it, though not every single verse. Some of it I'm just going to paraphrase for you. But we're be- beginning a brand new series called uh, The I Ams of Jesus. So uh, really it's about looking at the identity of Christ as he has displayed it in the Gospel of John. There are seven very specific I am statements that Jesus made about himself in the Gospel of John. So when you get up in the morning, and let's say tomorrow morning you get up and you look in the mirror, and you say, I am, and then you fill in the blanks. I am tired. I am, uh, I am ugly. <laughs> I I am stupid. I am unworthy. I am, and there's a million different things you can put after that. Or you may say, I am smart, Uh, I am talented, I am gifted. The two words, the words that you put after that two word statement are some of the most important words that you will speak to yourself about yourself. And, And here's why. They are very powerful words because those words that you fill in the blank with is what helps to shape your reality in life. It begins to shape who you see yourself as being. And sometimes, if not most of the time, we fill in the blank with things that are very negative, things that are that tear us down rather than building us up. We tend to gravitate towards the negative over the positive when we look at ourselves. And we here's the the next fill in the blank. We always live out who we believe we are. All right, if I think that I'm stupid, I am stupid. Because somebody told me a long time ago that I was stupid, I believed them, and now when I look at myself, I am stupid. So therefore, every time I make a mistake, well, that's just the way it is because I'm stupid, Whenever you're challenged to move outside of your comfort zone towards something else, well, I can't do that. I'm, stu- I'm too stupid to do that. And so you see how that begins to shape the reality of our lives? It's how we see ourselves. It's how we have programmed our minds. And your mind is the control center of your life. Your life always moves in the direction of your most dominant thinking. So it's very important, the words that you put after I am. And so as we look at Jesus, Jesus described and defined himself through the I am statements, which also in turn describes and defines us as followers of Jesus Christ because the Bible says that we are now in Christ and he is in us, that we have been seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. And so everything that Jesus has become, we have become. No, we're not gods. But we are children of God, and so all of the, as Paul put it in Ephesians 1, all of the spiritual benefits of Christ are yes in Jesus and are available to us in the here and now. For example, how many times Christians spend their lives going, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Well, then is it any wonder that that's the way we act? That's not what the Bible says. If you look at what Paul said to the churches as he addressed them, he did not say, I am a sinner. He says, I am a saint. A saint is someone who has been set apart by God, made holy in Christ, because you've been enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus, and therefore I see myself from a whole different perspective. I see myself from a whole different viewpoint, and therefore I live an entirely different life. Does that mean that I never commit sin? No. But that is not the description that God has given to us as followers in Christ. We are the saints of God, made holy in Christ, set apart for God's purpose and for God's use. It's a whole different mindset. And so your current behaviors are a reflection of your current identity, how you see yourself. Most of the behaviors that you don't like about yourself, I'll guarantee you, you can probably trace it back to how you're thinking after that I am statement that's leading to that behavior in your life. So if you want to change your behavior, you have to change how you see yourself. You have to change the mental processes that are putting you on the pathway that is leading to that particular behavior. This is where the I am's of Jesus comes in, because his I am's became our I am's, and they translate to us Because um, we we are in Christ, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, Say, for example, uh, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gave a parable about a father and two sons. And the reason he gave this parable is because Jesus was being criticized by the spiritual elite for hanging around sinners, right? And so Jesus gives three parables, and one of which is the parable of the prodigal son, which is commonly referred to. And so in this parable, two sons... um, that represent us, and then the father who represents God, the youngest son says to his father, listen, I want my inheritance. I demand it now. I know I'm supposed to wait till you die, but I want it now, and I mean I want it now. And So the father gave him his portion of the inheritance. Now, as the younger son, he only received a third of the inheritance because the older son always got two-thirds. So what did his son do with his inheritance? He went out and and he blew it. The Bible says he went out and and spent it on prostitutes and partying and, and anything that he could get himself into. And when he ran out of money, guess what else he ran out of? He ran out of friends. Isn't that amazing? Now, all of a sudden, he's all by himself. He has no money. He has nowhere to go. He's departed from his father. He said, in essence, to his dad when he left the house, I wish you were dead, uh, but because you're not, just give me my inheritance. So he blew all of his money, and so then he finds a farmer, a pig farmer, and he starts slopping the pigs. And the Bible says that he even longed to eat the pods of the pigs. Now, you got to be pretty hungry. I, okay, in my first church, I had a pig farmer in my church. I helped him slot those hogs from time to time. You've you got to be really hungry if you want the pods of pigs. That's all I can say. It is not like, ooh, yeah, it's, it's just nasty. So, so then he comes to his senses, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father's house. And and I'm just going to confess what I've done and and ask for his forgiveness. And the Bible says when he was a long way off, the father went running after him, hugged him, kissed him, representing God, lavished his his love on his son, put a robe on him, a, a signet ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, killed the fatted calf and was throwing this huge party. And then the older son heard the party going on, came back to the house and said, what's going on to one of the servants? And he says, well, they're throwing a party. Your, your, your brother has come back. He was dead. Now he's alive. And, and uh, yeah, they're throwing a big party for him. And he was infuriated. And when the father came out and invited him in, he says, no way. You've never killed a fatted calf for me. You've never done anything like that for me. Now, here's what the older brother failed to realize. And what the father, in essence, said to him, you are my oldest son. Everything I have is yours it's all yours you've always had it and that's what we miss in christ jesus would say to us everything i have is yours my identity has become your identity my resources have become your resources all that i did for you has become yours You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to reap the blessings and the benefits of this relationship with Jesus Christ. He has secured it all now. That gives you a whole different mindset. So every one of the I am statements is directed towards a specific need in your life. For example, the need of hunger, right? Are you hungry? I'm the bread of life, which we're going to look at today. What does it mean to be hungry? It means to be unsatisfied. Like, I need something to satisfy my hunger, to satisfy my taste. And he says, are you blind? Then I'm the light of the world. If you're searching, then I am the gate. If you're lonely, then I'm the good shepherd. If you're empty, I'm the resurrection and life. If you're confused, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you are powerless, I am the true vine. And so Jesus, at the height of his popularity, he's two years into his ministry, about 20,000 people are following him right now. And so when you come to John chapter 6 and the opening of this, Jesus has a, a, a dilemma. He's been teaching all day long. The people are tired. They are hungry. There are 5,000 men plus women and children. So estimation, fifteen to 20,000 people are there. And he looks at uh, Philip and one of his disciples and he says, hey, what are you going to do about this? Get some food and let's feed these people. Now, why did he ask Philip? Well, Philip was from Bethesda, which was just a short period, uh, just short jaunt from where they were, and uh, he's like, Lord, don't you understand? This would be eight months' wages to feed all these people. I can't buy that many happy meals and get them here on time. And then Andrew comes bebopping up there with a, a child, a little child, who has this sack lunch, his Lunchables. Like little five little barley loaves. Now, when we think about loaves of bread, we think about big old loaves of bread because that's what we... No, these are like little crackers, and two fish were like the size of a sardine. No way could 20,000 people be fed from this little meal. And really, the first miracle in that miracle is that the the little kid was willing to give up his lunch. Like my little grandson, Cooper's here, and uh, last Sunday, he was with us for lunch, and I went and bought him chicken nuggets and fries. Put him on his plate. I had some leftover steak and some fries, and my wife had something else. And here's his mindset it's okay for me to borrow from your plate, but don't you dare touch my plate because immediately you get, it's mine, 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 right? So this kid gives up his lunch, and Jesus does the miraculous. He feeds all of these people, and it's a sign. Right? John calls them a sign. It's, it's something, a sign is something that's trying to, to um, he, he uses it in his gospel. In fact, there are several different signs that he uses in order to point people to Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting for, that he is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. And so after that, Jesus tells his disciples to get in a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee while he went up into the wilderness, into the kind of a a different area, and began praying. So, midway into the night, they're in this horrendous storm. Jesus comes walking out on the water, and they see, you know, kind of through the storm, and they're rowing as much as they can, thinking they're going to die. And they realize they thought it was a ghost. They realize it's Jesus, and he comes and steps into the boat, calms the storm. All is well. And it says immediately they were at the, at the place of their destination where he had told them to go. Now that's the backdrop, the setting, against what Jesus is now going to, to um, begin describing in this discourse with all of those that are there with him who were kind of like disciples of his during that day and time. Jesus is going to kind of let us eavesdrop into that conversation because in this conversation, Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand. And the line in the sand is this. If you really want to be a follower of mine, then there are some things I'm looking for. There are some things you're going to have to do. There's, there's, a, there's a line you're going to have to cross. And just to like kind of give you a spoiler alert, at the end of this conversation that Jesus has, it says... Many, if not most, of those 20,000 disciples walked away and said, we don't want any part of this. Now, that's devastating to church, right? If we had 20,000 people show up, well, we wouldn't have room for them. Let's just say we had 1,000 people show up. We'd be signing them up as fast as you can. Yeah, come on. Yeah, come on. Fill up a pew. Fill up a pew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're taking an offering up here in a minute, and right? So... Come one, come all. But Jesus says, well, um, let me thin out the crowd here. Let's find out who is a true authentic follower of mine and who is not. So there are three individuals that we're going to look at this morning, and this is these are the three. There is the consumer follower, there's the casual follower, and then there is the committed follower. Only the committed followers stayed with Jesus which was his original 12 disciples. And Jesus looked at them and said, are you not going to go also? And Peter looked back at Jesus and said, where else could we go? You are the only one with divine truth. Where else would we go? So let's look at what Jesus converses in these verses in uh, John chapter 6. So let's pick it up down in verse 24. Feeding of 5,000, walking on the water, it says, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum to search for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, uh, when did you get here? Because remember, they saw the disciples get into a boat and take off, but they never saw Jesus leave. But Jesus walked on water in the middle of the night, so they, they're, they're looking. The crowds are seeking him. They're following him. Why are they following him? And why is Jesus in Capernaum? Well, Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but Capernaum was his center uh, um, headquarters for his ministry. It's where Peter lived, and it was probably in Peter's household. You recall Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law uh, at one time. And so here is Jesus in Capernaum, and... Uh, It says in verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, isn't that an interesting answer? In fact, Jesus really never answers the question they originally asked. He went to the heart of the motive as to why they were looking for him. They weren't looking for him because they were enamored by spiritual truth that he taught on that day that he fed the five thousand. Remember, he taught all day long. You think I preach long. All day long. And so it wasn't that they were seeking him out for more spiritual truth. They were seeking him out, he says, because they just wanted another happy meal. They only wanted what Jesus could physically give them for their physical bodies. And, um, and so they're not looking for this spiritual truth. And quite frankly, you know, many in his day and time spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money just, you know, figuring out how they're going to get their next meal. So you've got this free meal, and my motto is, if it's free, it's for me. So they, they come after Jesus. They're asking for, you know, another, another meal. And uh, do you know that there are people who seek the Lord not because they love him, not because they necessarily want to get to know him, they simply want what he has to offer them. This is the consumer follower. The problem with the consumer follower is that at some point you will reject Jesus when he doesn't give into your demands. It's all about your temporal needs. What you can get from him in order to feel better, to have a need met, to be satisfied physically, but Jesus was more concerned at this point about spiritual issues, not diminishing physical needs. Well, Why would that be? Because he's going to start talking about being the bread of life. And he would say, in essence, what good would it for me to do if I were to heal you of a physical ailment in your body, but you never receive me as the bread of life. And when your your days are done on planet earth and you draw your last breath, you will spend eternity separated from me. What good would it do if I bailed you out of every single financial problem you had, but you never were really interested in me and knowing me and seeking me? You only wanted me to be your genie to bail you out of those financial situations, and therefore, what good would that do if I have not first met your spiritual, greatest spiritual need, tackling your greatest spiritual problem, which is sin, and then you die and you spend eternity separated from me? What good would that do? In fact, let's put it down to where we are uh, why do you follow Jesus? Why do you actually go to church? Why do you pick up your Bible? Why do you pray? If Jesus were to say to you tomorrow, I just want you to know from this day forward, I've secured your eternal home because you have a relationship with me, but I want you to know from this day forward, I'm not doing another thing for you here on planet earth. I'm not going to bail you out of your financial problems. I'm not going to heal you of any physical ailments. I'm not going to do anything else for you. I've done all that I can do, all that I'm going to do. You have eternal life, and when you step into heaven, everything will be new. Everything will be different. Everything will be transformed. Would you still follow him? Think about that. There are many people who run from conference to conference, church to church, one thing after another, because they're seeking an experience. They're just seeking what God can do for them. They're just seeking, God, you know, I've got to have this, and I've got to do this. And and so they spend their lives wrapped up in legalism that says, if I do A, B, and C, then God is is required to do X, Y, and Z for me. Like, if I just behave right, and if I do the right things, and, you know, and then God is really, you know, He is... He has to do this for me. I've been a good person. I've been a good Jesus follower. And we just chase after him because of what we want. And so Jesus is going to confront this whole issue. Look in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that spoils, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God, the Son of Man, will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, if you're going to work for something, don't just work for a paycheck. Don't just work for a bigger house. Don't just work for more things. He says, those will not stand the test of eternity. These things will perish, right? He says, you want to work for the things that will last forever. Spend your life on the things that have eternal value. What is it that has eternal value? jesus has eternal value what else in this world has eternal value it's not your stuff it's not your house it's not your clothes it's not your car it's not your hobbies people are of eternal value to god and jesus is saying in essence i've come into the world and because i want you to work for one thing what is of eternal value develop your spirit understand me understand my words, spend time with me, all of that will have bearing on your life and the life to come. And yes, reach out to people, invite them to church, share with them, love them, and, and, and do good for them. I guess if you boil it all down, it's like this. Do we just seek the Lord to get our needs met, or we just, do we seek the Lord just for the sake of seeking him? That's the question on the table. Jesus is saying, are you, actually, are you coming here To actually seek me, or you just want what I can give you? Now, if you flip that around, here's what Jesus would say to all of us. If you just seek me, by seeking me, I will meet your needs. I will satisfy the hunger in your soul. You will not have to spend your life chasing after things that cannot bring you temporary, let alone eternal satisfaction. I never designed things for that purpose. God gave us a lot of things that we can enjoy in life. God wants to meet our needs. God wants to bless us, he want, but he wants us to seek him for the sake of seeking him. And when you seek him for the sake of seeking him, then God meets your needs and adds these things undo, unto you as a child of his. So in this hard teaching, because a lot of these, these people are going to walk away when Jesus starts unfolding this, they're going to all walk away. And why did they walk away? It's not the hardness of their teaching so much as the hardness of their hearts. They just wanted one thing from God Give me, give me, give me, give me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me protect me, protect me, protect me, protect, protect me. And when that's all said and done, I'll just move on to the next thing. I'll just move on. See, there are some people who are consumers in churches. They come to the church. What do you got for my kids? Great. And then they, you know, as long as you're meeting their needs, they're fine and well. But the minute that stops, they just move on to another church. And they'll move on to another church. And they'll move on to another church because they have this consumer mentality Rather than seeking the Lord Himself. And so this is why the gospel is so important to us, is because if we don't bring the gospel into everything that we do as we reach out to our community and those around us, then we're we're no different than any other civic organization. We want to help people, we want to meet their needs, we want to feed them and, and clothe them and, and help them with shelter, but We also want to bring to bear on the reason why we're doing that because we can meet all of those physical needs, all of their lives, but if we don't tell them about Jesus to where they can enter into relationship with Jesus when their life is said and done, they spend eternity separated from him. So what good have you done for them? Nothing other than temporary relief. That's what we don't want to happen. Here's the casual follower. They will depart from Jesus when they refuse to surrender all to him. Verse 28, they asked him, they said, well, what must we do to do the works of, that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. What must we do to do the works God requires? Now, this is a question that has been asked a thousand different ways. But here's the basic bottom line of the question. It's the same question the rich young ruler brought to Jesus one time when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, well, what does the law say? See, so he rattled off some things, and the rich young ruler looked at him and says, well, I've done all those things. Well, that was like a batter with a, a swing and a miss. There's nobody who's, who has done all of the law perfectly. Now, remember, in Jesus' day and time, they're still adhering to the Old Testament laws of Moses. Nobody held those laws perfectly. In fact, James would say later on, if you've broken one, you've broken all of them. So Jesus wants to help him to understand that. So what does Jesus say to him? Okay, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And that guy's like, Well, then no way. I can't do that. Now, it wasn't that Jesus required this of everybody who wanted to be a follower of his, right? This is the only, the only person we know of They'd asked to do that. What was Jesus doing? He was tagging into his motives. Remember, what must I do? What m- work must I do in order to inherit eternal life? This is the mindset of humanity. What must I do to work my way into God's good graces? How can I know that my good works will outweigh my bad works at the end of my life and I'm going to be in? I've got my ticket for heaven. If you talk to the average person, this is exactly what they'll say and they'll say it in a thousand different ways. Well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good citizen. I love my wife. I treat my kids well. I pay my taxes. I I don't cheat at, at work and I do the best I can and I just hope someday, you know, when it's all said and done, I'm going to make it right? This is what most people do. And so the, my question for a person is simply this, how good then is good enough? How good do you have to be to enter into heaven? Well, I don't know, but I think I'm, I think I'm there. I, I, think I'm, I think I've made it. Well, here's what the Bible says, that you have to be perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. I know that. That's your dilemma. In fact, if, if this is the system that God has set up, that your good works outweigh your bad? Don't you think he would have instructed us on how that system works? Like, you know, if I do bad things, like how many points is that against me? And if I do good things, how many points do I get for that? And who's keeping score? And, and how am I going to find out how I'm doing halfway through my life or three-quarters of the way through my life? I, I want to know where I'm at on the scale because, you know, I may need to pump up my, uh, my good works over here because I'm, I'm getting out of balance. How's this whole thing work? And if that was God's system, don't you think he would have shared that with us? But we, as believers, we get caught up in the same thing. We say things like this to us, well, I had a really bad week. Man, I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. I really, you know, my anger got the best of me, and I said things I shouldn't have said. And my attitude is stunk. And you know, I really laid—I laid into my coworker, and and she really didn't deserve it. He didn't really deserve it. And then when you go and try to pray, you're like praying, God, oh please help me forgive me. I'm so sorry. I, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. And so we think that like God, this relationship that we have with God is dependent upon how I to conduct myself as to whether or not God's going to like you know zap me or bless me you know am I going to receive like oh I can't ask that from God in prayer because man I've had a bad week and and there's no way God's going to give me that he's no, no way he's going to allow me to experience that because I've had such a rotten week and I've just not been a good follower of Jesus same kind of works mentality and so what is Jesus calling for what was he calling for from the rich young ruler, what is he calling for from these would-be followers? He is calling for absolute complete surrender. See, the, the casual follower will, will depart from Jesus because why? They refuse to surrender to him. They might surrender a few things, but they're gonna keep a lot of things like off-guard, you know, like this is like, okay, Jesus, I'll surrender this, but this, this, and this over here, mm, no way. Right? And um, so Jesus says, what is the work? He says, the work is to believe. What does that word believe mean? The word believe means believe, right? But it's not just like a mental belief, like, oh, I believe Jesus existed. I believe Jesus died for thy sins. And I, I believe even the demons believe that, all right? They acknowledged him as the Holy One of God, and they acknowledged his deity. They believed all those things, but they ain't making it. All right, so belief means that you are believing to the point that you are willing to surrender all to Jesus. You're willing to surrender it all. You're willing to lay it all on the line. You see, if I'm a casual believer and I refuse to lay things on the line for Christ, then I just pick and choose what I will do, what I will not do, where I go, where I will not go, and this relationship then gets all bottled up, and we think things like, well, what do I have to do to get God on my side, and what do I need not do to keep God from getting angry at me? And and so the Bible says you have become a double-minded person, and now you are unstable in all your ways. You're not enjoying the relationship Jesus came to establish with you. You're all over the map. You get up every day wondering, well, what's God think of me today? What do I need to do today? Get, get back in God's good graces. And, and what did I do last night? And, and what did I do the day before? That's... And so we just go through this, this whole montage every single day trying to figure out where we are in standing with God. So verse 30, so he asked them, what miraculous sign then will give, we'll give that we may see it and believe you? what will you do? Remember, they're demanding a sign from Jesus. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as they're written. He gave them bread from heaven. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses that gave them the bread in heaven. It is my father who gave them the bread in heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so what he is saying is simply in, is this, is that they're demanding another sign, another sign, another sign. In other words, they were saying this, and here's what people say. If God will just do this one thing for me, then I'll believe. Do you know how many hospital rooms I've been in where loved ones are standing beside the bed of somebody who's a relative, a father, a mother, a relative, a grandmother, a grandfather, and make the statement, if God will heal them and raise them up off that bed, God, I will do da, 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 da. I've heard it hundreds of times. And almost without exception, if God answers that prayer, nothing changes in their life. It might for a little bit, but for very little. Because they've never really surrendered anything, right? All they wanted was what God would, could give them. And they're demanding that sign, oh Lord, if you just do this, I will believe. If you just do this, I will surrender. If you just do this, I will lay down my all for you. And it really doesn't happen. And so Jesus, you know, so here they come back to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, you know, that, that feeding in the, you know, 20,000 was a pretty good trick. But Moses, and of course they revered Moses, right? Moses, he fed us manna from heaven six days a week for 40 years. Now, if you could do that, we might believe. And so Jesus very quickly um, corrects them. He says, first of all, Moses didn't give you anything. Moses didn't get up every night making manna. You know, we're talking about two million people every night. God dropped manna to feed two million people six days a week for forty years. Moses wasn't b- baking the manna, right? Manna was like this small, round, sweet almost like a tortilla kind of thing that he brought down every day. You could collect the food you needed, except for the on you. had collect double on Friday for the Sabbath on Saturday. Forty years, he says, Moses didn't do that. No, th- this was God who was, who was dropping manna from heaven. And uh, honestly, Moses was asleep while manna was coming out of heaven. And so just as God dropped manna out of heaven for, your physical, for the physical lives of the Israelites, God has now dropped out of heaven manna before you, me, to bring you eternal life. And the Greek word here for eternal life is the word zoe, which speaks of what? Spiritual life, spiritual rebirth, spiritual relationship. Because we are born into the world spiritually dead. And until we become spiritually alive, we have no life in Christ. We have no real relationship with God and so Jesus has come into the world to be Savior Messiah in order to bring us spiritual life. And so it was, the manna was a bridge to Jesus. It was small. It spoke of Jesus' humility. It was round. It spoke of his infancy. He, it was white. It spoke of his purity. It was sweet. It spoke of the blessing that Christ came to bring into the world. It came at night. Jesus was unexpected. It was misunderstood. And so Jesus is being questioned. And Jesus is saying... Listen, God sent this down. Now watch this, verse 35. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. What are they wanting? They want another sign. They want another thing God would do for them. They don't really care or are interested in the spiritual side of things. They're only interested in the physical side of things. How many people in this world live every day of their lives only trying to satisfy the physical side of their lives? Give me another car. Give me another house. Give me another meal. Give me a cell phone. Give me more social media. Give me this. Give me that. And it never, never satisfies. It's always something else always something more. And he says, all the Father gives me in verse 37 will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, he's going to say this over and over, not to do my will, but but to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Whom the Father chose. If God chose you, now you're able to respond to him. It's called the doctrine of predestination, election. I know that wigs a lot of people out. It's not that God, you know, when you're coming off the assembly line, God says you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That, that's not what it means. It means that everybody, God knows already knows, everyone who's going to turn their lives towards him. He chose you. The Bible says, Jesus said at one time, unless the Spirit draws you to the Father, you would never come. So when God chooses you, you become a part of the everyone. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the only reason you have the ability to choose is because the Father chose you. This is a beautiful thing. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Therefore, as God has chosen you, he says, listen, God's not going to let anybody who he's chosen to depart from me, right? True followers will follow me. Commit to me indefinitely to the end. That's the characteristic of a true follower. God has chosen. They have committed. Now, we may have times where we lapse, where we kind of get out of fellowship and we kind of, you know, get into maybe some carnality, as, as Paul describes it, you're, you're saved but living like a lost man. We may have those detours, but ultimately those who have inherited true eternal life in Christ will Continue on to the end. So at all of this, here's what they, the Jews say. It says they started grumbling about Jesus because he, he said he's the bread of life who came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? I mean, really? We, uh, we saw this kid grow up. Uh, we know his parents. He can't be anything more than a mere human being, the son of Joseph and Mary. And Jesus is challenging that. Now, I've got two minutes here. So if you continue to read this chapter, this dialogue is going to go back and forth and back and forth. Right? So verse 60, here's what it says. On hearing this, he says, many of his disciples—not his tw- original twelve, but all these people who are following him as disciples—this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And so, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, "Does, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? The Spirit gives life; the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are, are Spirit—they spoken to you are Spirit—and they are life." Zoe, life, life, eternal life, yet there are some of you who do not believe it. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned their backs and no longer followed Jesus. They never moved beyond curiosity to absolute surrender and commitment. They never moved beyond the temporary to the eternal. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the holy son of God. So remember this, you always reproduce the environment around you that you cultivate within you. God's designed you to not be a thermos, thermometer, but a thermostat. A thermometer simply tells me what the temperature is in this room. A thermostat controls the temperature. God has given us eternal life, and God is giving us every blessing that is available in Christ so that when we walk into an environment, we can literally change the environment because we are the thermostat of Jesus. And We'll see this more distinctly next week when he says, I am the light of the world, and therefore you've become the light of the world. So Here's what I want you to grasp hold of. If you're a true, authentic follower of Christ, you've become a new creation in Jesus. You've been chosen by Christ. You've been indwelt by his Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by that Holy Spirit. You've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Therefore you have become a new creation and a different individual than what you once were. And so there are declarations of statements that you need to make after the I am, other than the ones that say, well, I am stupid, I am ugly, I am unworthy, I am unlovable. Those are not I am statements of Jesus to you. Those are coming from the enemy seeking to keep you hemmed in and pinned down from operating in what you have become in Christ. So I want you to stand together. We're going to put some declarations up on the screens, and I want us to say these out loud because I have found that it's very helpful if you say something out loud, and we're going to say this out loud. Because you are in Christ, here's the first one. My prayers are powerful and effective, right, together. My prayers are powerful and effective. You believe that? You're in Christ. Your prayers are so powerful and so effective that you can literally transform the atmosphere around you, and God can use you to transform people's lives. Here's the second one. God richly supplies all my needs. How many of them? All. All, right? So let's say this together. God richly supplies all my needs. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been praying about some needs. I haven't seen the the abundance of overflow yet in my life. Hang on. When, When the time is right, God will supply what it is you need. Number three, I am dead to sin and alive to live supernaturally. I am dead to sin and alive to live supernaturally. Hence the word supernaturally. How are you alive to operate supernaturally because you have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. One of Paul's prayers to the church at Ephesus is, I hope you understand about the supernatural power you have that you can bring into effect upon people's lives because you're a follower of Jesus. Number four, I walk in ever-increasing health. All right, well, you're pretty lame on that one. So uh, you say, wait a minute, Greg, My I'm getting older. My health is deteriorating. My body's failing. I understand that. I get that. The health I'm talking about is the health of your soul. Paul said, even though my body is wasting away inside, my spirit is renewed day after day after day. And I realize that when you reach a certain age, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not that age. I get up the next day, something new hurts. Something's not working. I get that. I understand there's a, limited, there's a limited time we have with these bodies. But that doesn't mean that I cannot operate and function in the health of this relationship with Jesus Christ. Number five, I live under supernatural protection. All right, let's get a little more enthusiastic here supernatural protection. Who's protecting you? God is. Right, he dispatches angels in order to bring divine protection in your life as it needs be. These are declarations. This is, I'll give, give you a verse. There's a verse for every one of these. Number six, I prosper in all my relationships. Number seven, I consistently bring God encounters to other people. Yeah, why? Because you can change the atmosphere, right? You're a thermostat. You're not a thermometer. Stop listening to the lies of the evil one. You have the power of God residing in you, the same power that was in Jesus, the same power that was in his disciples, and all the disciples after that. God wants to do some great things. Number eight, I, through Jesus, I am 100% loved and worthy to receive all of God's blessings. You got to say that with enthusiasm, Okay. Come on, 100%. All right, here's number nine. We're almost done. God is on my side, therefore I cannot be discouraged or defeated. Now, you can allow yourself to be discouraged and defeated, but you don't have to be discouraged and defeated. Because, God, listen, if God gives you a vision in your heart, God's going to supply what is needed, and He can supply anything. He can make any provision, any time, anywhere, any place, for any person, for any reason at all. And therefore, I can get discouraged, but the moment I do, it's like, why am I discouraged? My Heavenly Father, has He owns all the cattle on the hillside. He owns everything. He can dispatch whatever is needed, and therefore... Watch this. Turn your discouragement into gratitude, into praise, into worship, and then the joy of the Lord will begin to fill your heart. And out of that overflow of the joy of the Lord, man, you're going to find God doing some things in your life that you never dreamed possible. Here's the last one. I speak God's promises over my life. My faith is being strengthened to possess all that Jesus won for me. You believe that? Really? From your mouth to God's ear. That was really lame. So let's let's just offer some praise to the Lord this morning for these declarations because every single one of them are yes in Christ and they are yes in you because of Jesus, the eternal life of God resides in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's thank him for that this morning. Amen? Amen. Come on, I'm trying to ramp you up. All right, we're going to have a closing song. And for you are here this morning, and let's just bow our heads. And and maybe um, you're here this morning, but you've never really committed your life to the Lord Jesus. I mean, you've toyed around with him. And uh, maybe you're like, oh, man, I I just kind of found myself to be the consumer. I'm just trying to get something from him. Or I'm just kind of a casual follower. I'm not really ready to lay it all on the line but today you are and so you're just you're just bottom line you're just ready to lay it on the line and and to accept Jesus as the bread of life who can bring ultimate satisfaction and you might pray something Lord Jesus I'm not perfect but I believe that you died for me and right here and right now I'm asking you to save me to change me to give me new life In Jesus' name, if you pray that prayer, I mean, this is what Jesus will do for you. As followers of Christ, God has so many opportunities in front of us as a church to reach out into our community, to splash people, show people love, and share him. And we need to take advantage of those. But I'm gonna tell you what, if we're not fully committed, if we're not willing to surrender and lay it on the line, we won't move. All right, we'll come Sundays, we'll sit in here, we'll, you know, we'll sing, we'll have a Bible study. Um, yeah, we, we may even feel some things from the Lord, but then when we leave here, it's like it's gone. It's like, boom, it's taken away. Um, it starts with surrender, laying it all on the line. When you get to that point in your life, to the point that you're even willing to surrender your physical life, no one... Or anything can stop you. Nothing can stop you if you get to that point in your life. Remember when I asked us to pray the dangerous prayer? God, what are my fears? See, your fears are what some of you keep from sharing Jesus. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people think. I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm afraid of what they'll ask me, and so we do nothing. Listen. you get to the point where you're not even afraid of somebody taking your life, then nobody can stop you. That's the surrender that God's looking for. So Father, we thank you. Bless the name of Jesus as we sing praises to your name. Amen.